On July 21st, 1969, uh, Neil Armstrong set foot on the moon. He stated, that's one small step for a man, one giant leap for mankind. The Apollo 11 mission was successful, and the crew, including Buzz Aldrin and uh, Michael Collins, returned safely to planet Earth. Apollo 12 brought two more men to set foot on the moon. Pete Conrad and Alan Bean spent parts of November 19th and 20th, 1969, walking on the moon. The three-man crew, including Richard Gordon, the command module pilot, again returned safely to planet Earth. But then there was Apollo 13. Um, many of you may have seen the movie. How many of you have seen the movie Apollo 13? Quite a few of you had. A very exciting movie. Apollo 13 was launched from Florida on April 11, 1970. James Lovell, Jack Swigert, and Fred Hayes were on their way to the moon. They communicated with the NASA Command Center in Houston, Texas, and everything seemed to be going well. But at 56 hours into the mission, during the third day into the flight, 200,000 miles from Earth, the number two oxygen tank exploded, and damaging the number one oxygen tank as well. Apollo 13 then announced to NASA at the command center in Houston the famous statement, Houston, we have a problem. That was an understatement. That was the famous quote in the movie Apollo 13, but the actual statement was, Houston, we've had a problem here. They were losing not only oxygen, but electricity as well. So they moved from the command center into the, the module, the lunar module. The Houston Mission Control Center uh, instructed the staff to find a solution. So here in Houston, they got together all the various materials that duplicated materials on the Apollo mission. And they were to try to find a solution so that they could still have oxygen and electricity and return safely. It was a life and death situation. They contrived, that is, those uh, the staff in Houston contrived filters. They determined what electrical circuits to shut down. And the Apollo 13 crew followed those instructions and managed to survive. They returned to Earth on April 17, 1970. They had a problem that was a life and death problem, and yet they, they found a solution. They had some help. And they followed the instructions so they could apply that solution. We all face problems and challenges and trials, and some of us have faced not only trials and challenges, but what we would call a crisis from time to time. And we know that just the stress of traffic, of commuting, can kill us because of stress. And some of us face financial problems, serious social and job-related problems, then we add to those stresses the frightening specter of terrorism in the United States and attacking other cities and nations around the world. And then we face the natural disasters of firestorms, and as happened in Southern California, and drought, and earthquakes, and tsunamis, and hurricanes. The Northwest United States, as many of you know, is currently uh, experiencing flooding. The Southwestern United States experienced extensive fires where 1,700 homes were burned, including the home my wife and I lived in for almost four years. 
And, of course, thankfully we moved uh, four years and nine months before it burned down. But 500,000 acres were destroyed. And one firefighter said it was like Armageddon. It was an incredible, out-of-control inferno. And here in the United States, the southeastern part of the United States, we're experiencing exceptional drought, severe and extreme drought. If you, uh, those of you who have access to the Internet can take a look at the drought monitor, and you'll see not only the extreme drought, not only severe drought, but what they call the ultimate exceptional drought. So my question to all of us today is, will you be able to face these problems in the future? I know many of us have faced severe trials and crises in the past. What problems are you facing now? And what are your pet peeves and frustrations? Can you solve agonizing problems? In today's sermon, we'll consider several different kinds of problems, and let's consider possible solutions. But I want to ask a more challenging question. Are you a problem, or are you part of the solution? So let's understand, brethren, that God has called you and me to be a part of the solution to the world's problems. Again, I want to ask, are you a problem, or are you a solution? Let's turn to 1 Corinthians, the fifth chapter, and we found here that one person can be a problem to the whole congregation and influence the whole congregation, to be a problem. It was such a severe problem that the Apostle Paul wrote the most corrective letter in the New Testament. 1 Corinthians, the fifth chapter, verse 1. It is reported commonly that there is fornication among you, and such fornication as is not so much as named among the Gentiles, that one should have his father's wife. And you are puffed up. Oh, they had vanity, they were enlightened, they were tolerant. They had a wrong kind of tolerance, and today we have that wrong kind of tolerance that says, I can tolerate anything, and that makes me an enlightened person in the 21st century, because I can tolerate sin and not call it sin. And that's the kind of tolerance that many brag about today. You are puffed up and have not rather mourned that he that has done this deed might be taken away from among you. So it was not only the individual, but it was the congregation that had a problem. For I verily as absent in the body, but present in spirit, have judged already, as though I were present concerning him who has done this deed. Of course, he did have the testimony and reports that came from Corinth. In the name of our Lord Jesus Christ, when you are gathered together in my spirit with the power of our Lord Jesus Christ, to deliver such a one to Satan for the destruction of the flesh, that the spirit may be saved in the day of the Lord Jesus. The Apostle Paul, as a minister of Christ, had that authority, a spiritual authority, to deliver a sinner to Satan for the destruction of the flesh. But it was for his own benefit. It was for his good. Went on to say, of course, your glorying is not good. And this is a lesson we rehearse often during the uh, days of unleavened bread. But what happened to that individual because of the discipline? Turn to 2 Corinthians, the 7th chapter. 2 Corinthians 7. Actually, in chapter 2, uh, he says that this individual had made some changes 
and that they, the congregation, should forgive this sinner because he had repented. And he said, I'll just quote it here, 2 Corinthians 2.11, lest Satan should get an advantage of us, for we are not ignorant of his devices. In other words, if they hadn't forgiven him, the man would be so depressed, he would in a sense lose his salvation. But here in 2 Corinthians, the seventh chapter, the apostle Paul felt badly at first because he thought he'd been too corrective, too strong. And so he says in verse 9 of 2 Corinthians 7, Now I rejoice not that you were made sorry, but that you sorrowed to repentance, for you were made sorry after a godly manner, that you might receive damage by us in nothing. For godly sorrow works repentance to salvation, not to be repented of, but the sorrow of the world works death. And I know before I was converted, I had the sorrow of the world, and I'm sure some of you did too. When I was corrected, when I was wrong, I was sorry. But what kind of sorry was sorrowful was it? I was sorry that I got caught. I was sorry that I was embarrassed. I was sorry that, um, uh, well, that I uh, got caught and was embarrassed. But the sorrow of the world works death. And there are those who are in prison who have that same mentality. They're sorry they're in prison. And they express a sorrow. But what is the difference between a worldly sorrow and a godly sorrow? He goes on to say in verse 11, Behold, the selfsame thing that you sorrowed after a godly sort, what earnestness or what carefulness, what diligence it worked in you, what earnestness to be clear yourselves, yes, what indignation. Now, of course, we've heard about righteous indignation, and I hope that we can express righteous indignation, which means that we are angry against sin, injustice, and oppression. And if we're not, then we're Laodicean. We were just, uh, we, we are inured to the evils of this world, and we're not concerned about those, the wickedness and evils. What alarm, or what fear, what vehement desire, or what longing, what concern, what vindication, and all these things you've approved yourselves to be clear in this matter. In the King James it says, what carefulness it wrought in you. In other words, someone who has a godly sorrow is careful, full of care, not careless. If I'm trying to overcome cigarette smoking, I'm not careless to put a cigarette pack in my shirt, which is going to tempt me. I'm careful, full of care, to avoid the temptation. That's the fruit of godly sorrow. There are changes that take place in one. So ask yourself, have I ever produced the fruits of godly sorrow in your own life? Look back on your own life. Are you part of the solution, or are you a part of the, solu- of the problem? And ask yourself, am I now producing any of the fruits of godly sorrow? If you are producing the fruits of godly sorrow, then you can say you are a part of the solution to a terrible problem. You know what that problem is? Human nature. The problem of human nature. Do you have human nature? If you are human, you have human nature. Some individuals have never seen their human nature. They have not recognized it, or they will not admit their selfishness and vanity. I was just looking in the scripture just before um, the sermon here to double check, and yes, it is Psalm 39, I think, verse 5, 
Man in his best state is altogether vanity. Man in his best condition. And uh, in the New King James, it is uh, but vapor. In the, New, the King James, it is altogether vanity. So man in his best state. What is your best state? You know Jeremiah 17.9, so I won't turn there. The, or do you? I guess uh, that's another memorization verse. Um, the heart is deceitful above all things and desperately wicked who can know it. The heart is desperately wicked. That's your heart. That's my heart. The NIV says the heart is deceitful above all things and beyond cure. It's incurable. That is, humanly speaking. Who can understand it? The NASB says the heart is more deceitful than all else and is desperately sick. And that's the meaning. That's the uh, underlying meaning of uh, that particular verse in Jeremiah 17, 9. The church has described human nature in the past as vanity, jealousy, lust, greed, and selfishness. And Jeremiah says it's beyond cure. But he goes on to say in verse 10 of Jeremiah 17, I, the eternal, search the heart. I test the mind, even to give every man according to his ways, according to the fruit of his doings. So there is cause and effect. Let's turn to Galatians 6 and verse 7. And this is something that I hope all of us uh, understand, and we've experienced it. There is cause and effect. If you're sinning, you're going to pay a penalty. You're going to reap something that's going to be painful. It's going to cost you. Galatians, the uh, 6th chapter, verse 7. Be not deceived, God is not mocked. And here people who love the dark and think that, well, in the darkness of a bar or the darkness of a back car or the darkness of someone's home that uh, God is not going to see my sinfulness. For whatsoever a man sows, that shall he also reap. For he that sows to his flesh shall of the flesh reap corruption. And so we know that uh, actually recent reports from the the Center for Disease Control in Atlanta have shown that uh, teenage uh, sexual diseases are increasing. Uh, gonorrhea, syphilis, chlamydia, and some of those other diseases. As you sow, you're going to reap. He that sows to the Spirit, on the other hand, shall of the Spirit reap life everlasting. So there is cause and there is effect. The Apostle Paul describes his battle with human nature in Romans, the seventh chapter. Romans 7. We have a problem. The problem is that of human nature. But what is the solution? I won't read the whole section. You should read the, most of the chapter here. He says he does the things that he knows he shouldn't, and he doesn't do the things he knows he should, the sin of omission. Well, I've told you that story before, but I, I remember one time as a freshman ambassador and I was walking into my dormitory, and here were two of the evangelist wives walking down right in front of my dormitory, and both of them had their arms full of groceries. And I said, hi, Mrs. So-and-so, hi, Mrs. So-and-so, and then walked into my dormitory. I got in the dormitory and said, oh, you dummy, you didn't even offer to help them. It was a sin of omission. And I asked God for forgiveness. 
I did not do the things that I should have done. The Apostle Paul describes that he's carnal, that he's not carnally minded, but he has a carnal nature, a physical nature. Carnal mindedness is rebellious against God, as he says in Romans 8, 7. So he didn't have a carnal mind, but he had a carnal nature. We all have that. So he says here in verse 22, this, the solution to that carnal nature, For I delight in the law of God after the inward man, but I see another law in my members, warring against the law of my mind, and bringing me into the captivity to the law of sin which is in my members. O wretched man that I am, who shall save me from the body of this death? Now, the commentators don't understand this because they say, well, Paul was totally converted, and if he's under grace, how can he have this attitude? It must have been before he was converted. Because they don't understand that the process of salvation is one of overcoming. It's a lifetime of overcoming. The Apostle Paul recognized his human nature, but he also had a solution for it, that he delighted in the law of God, as it says in verse 22, And then verse 25, I thank God in answer to his question through Jesus Christ our Lord. In other words, I will overcome this body of death, this uh, sinful nature, through Christ. So then with the mind, verse 25, I myself serve the law of God, but with the flesh, the law of sin. Now some of you have not yet recognized your human nature Ask God to reveal it to you. And oh, and he does. You're going to see something terrible. I, I remember, well, I have to be careful about the wording, but I, I think it's since I'm quoting someone else, it'll be okay. Uh, <laughs> Dr. Herman Hay, years ago when I was in his class, talked about human nature, and he said, you know, all we are are garbage cans with a lid on it. That's a very graphic description of human nature. But the Apostle Paul had this feeling, oh, wretched man that I am. Job had that feeling, too, when he said, uh, I've seen you by the hearing of the, I've, I've seen, I've heard you by the hearing of the ear, but now my eye sees you, wherefore I repent in dust and ashes. I abhor myself. And if any of you have not come to that place in your life, you must come to that place sometime in your life. And repentance is a gift of God. Repentance is God giving you the ability to see yourself as that garbage can with a lid on it. But knowing also that God sacrificed his son for that garbage can, so to speak, and that you can change, and he has a way of salvation so that you can replace with his guidance human nature with the gift of divine nature. One of the aspects of human nature is that of complaining. When we face the world, the church and our family, we face sometimes complainers, gripers, whiners, and moaners. There's a recent article uh, that came out on the culture of complaining. I'll find it here. It was, uh, Welcome to the Culture of Global Complaint. And uh, this was a newspaper writer who was saying that what happens is that uh, when there's an issue that comes out, I'll just read this uh, to you under the, uh, this is from the Charlotte Observer, uh, Sunday, September 9th, 2007. 
the culture of complaint. When a local member of an organized group is offended by something in the newspaper, out goes an alert to an email network of like-minded people, and the newspaper is bombarded with complaints from everywhere. These days, one of America's fastest-growing hobbies seems to be organizing complaints. When a complaint is a stand against injustice, it's good for the soul and the nation. Remember the civil rights marches. But America is a politically and intellectually boisterous nation. People get their toes stepped on from time to time. I admire those resilient souls who know when complaint is justified and when to just grin and bear it. But it's interesting that our nation has a culture of complaint, not only our nations, but other nations. Don't raise your hands, but how many of you complained this past week? No. Thank you for raising your hands. Anyway. <laughs> okay. They complain. We might complain about the weather. We might complain about the traffic. We might complain about food at a restaurant. We might complain about our neighbor. We have barking dogs next door that uh, I have to pray about all the time. They keep me awake at night. And uh, we might complain about our job. What do you complain about? You might even list your complaints. Now, there's a difference between complaining and identifying a problem that needs solution. Let's turn to Philippians 2 and uh, verse 14. Philippians 2 and verse 14. This is another memorization verse. Do all things without murmurings and complainings or disputings. It has in the King James Version. In the New King James Version, do all things without complaining and disputing. The NIV has do everything without complaining or arguing. And the New American Standard says do all things without grumbling or disputing. I told you the story before, and I met the individual in Cincinnati who uh, prompted this. Uh, When I was pastoring Cincinnati back in 1965 and 1966, uh, my wife and I visited the home of uh, a deacon and his, his family, and he had this blackboard, and he put on the blackboard a scripture every week. And uh, the purpose of that was to help the family live by the Bible and to practice that particular verse for as long as they could uh, do well with that verse, and then he would put up a new scripture so they could grow and change. And uh, so when I visited him, he said, uh, Yes, this is what we do, and this uh, one, uh, Philippians 2.14, has been up here for quite some time, and uh, we, uh, in fact, it's been up here for six months. (laughs) So I wonder if you would put that on your blackboard at home, how long it would have to be up there before you started practicing it. Do all things without murmurings and disputings. That's not an easy thing to do. Well, what is the solution? If you were to work on that principle this week, what is the solution to the problem? Well, of course, the simple solution is to obey the Scripture, be one answer to the question. The other one is to replace complaining with thanksgiving. Let's turn to Colossians 2. Again, one of my favorite Scriptures, Colossians 2, verse 6. As you have received Christ Jesus the Lord, so walk you in Him. When you read First, Second, and Third John, The Apostle John is saying, abide in him, and he in you. Walk in him, and uh, he walks in you. He lives in you. 
So as you have received Christ Jesus the Lord, so walk you in him, rooted and built up in him, and established in the faith. In this, in this context, the word faith is used as a body of belief. As you have been taught, abounding therein with thanksgiving. And again, how thankful are you? Have you thanked God already today for so many things? The New King James has abounding in it with thanksgiving. First uh, Thessalonians 5. We just observed uh, in the United States a few weeks ago uh, the annual Thanksgiving. Canada had previously observed it. First Thessalonians, the fifth chapter. All these uh, various exhortations that are so meaningful. First Thessalonians 5, and you read the whole section here, verse, starting with verse 12. But uh, let's start with verse 16. Rejoice evermore. Pray without ceasing. Something that you probably covered this morning or touched on about uh, meditation and prayer and study. In everything give thanks, for this is the will of God in Christ Jesus concerning you. I remember as a boy in World War II, of course in those days we did not have television, we had radio, uh, we would go to uh, the Saturday matinee for uh, children on Saturday afternoon. And I remember seeing the news, the news bureau, and a news uh, movie uh, section. And it showed the aftermath of World War II, a boy my age, you know, groveling in a garbage can in a bomb-out city in Europe. And it really struck me. I went home that day and, and realized, thanking mom and dad, that I had a bed to sleep in with sheets and a pillowcase. And here was this little child out there just groveling to survive out in the midst of a desolate city, in a bombed-out city, and looking in a garbage can. But we have a lot to be thankful for, and that is one of the antidotes, of course, of complaining there's a new book out called A Complaint-Free World, How to Stop Complaining and Start Enjoying the Life You Always Wanted. The individual uh, had given out, he's a pastor, he'd given out bracelets to church members and challenged them to go 21 days straight without complaining or gossiping. And then the church offered to send the bracelets free upon request, and six million bracelets have been requested from around the world. But not everyone buys that no-complaint approach. Among the criticisms from this article in the Charlotte Observer, titled, Don't Gripe, Enjoy Life, among the criticisms the author has heard is that he advocates holding things in when it might be healthier to vent, or that he doesn't allow for addressing wrongs. Instead of holding things in, he suggests a statement of facts. For example, the soup is cold is different from how dare you bring me cold soup? He said he's learned a lot since the movement began. One of the main things is that people have an aversion to correcting things in their lives. He said they want things to be better, but they're afraid to do what it takes to make it better, so instead they complain. Now we as a church and perhaps as individuals have met the ever-present critic. Let's turn to uh, Jude the book of Jude. There have been always criticisms leveled against the church, 
And in this case, Jude is warning about those who are critics of the truth and of the church. Jude, verse 16. He says, These critics, these false ministers, these are murmurers, complainers, walking after their own lusts, and their mouth speaks great swelling words, having men's persons in admiration because of advantage. But, beloved, remember you the words which were spoken before the apostles of our Lord Jesus Christ, how that they were told uh, told you there would be mockers in the last days who should walk after their own ungodly lusts. These be they who separate themselves sensual, having not the Spirit. But then he gives us the advice, and the New King James subhead has, Maintain your life with God. But you, beloved, building yourselves up on your most holy faith, praying in the Holy Spirit, keep yourselves in the love of God, looking for the mercy of our Lord Jesus Christ into eternal life. And on some have compassion, making a distinction, but others save with fear, pulling them out of the fire, hating even the garment defiled by the flesh. I know that you're aware of the classical examples of critics, but let's take a look at that and remind ourselves in Numbers, the 16th chapter. Numbers 16. Here we have uh, Edward G. Robinson, who uh, appeared in the Ten Commandments, and uh, said, Oh, you just want to bring us back into Egypt? You did not make graves for us here? You want graves for us back in Egypt? You know, it went on and on like that. Well, this is the same kind of attitude that Korah had. Now, I think he played the part of Dathan, wasn't it? Either Dathan or Korah in uh, the Ten Commandment movie. But here were these uh, individuals, 250 princes. These were not just any men. They were the leaders of Israel. You know, you have maybe 3 million people, but you had 250 leaders. And God, of course, holds leaders uh, more responsible. In verse 11 of uh, number, well, you can read the first several verses here. They uh, said, uh, verse 3 of Numbers 16, And they gathered themselves together against Moses and against Aaron, and said unto them, You take too much upon you, seeing all the congregation are holy, every one of them, and the eternal is among them. Why do you lift up yourselves above the congregation of the eternal? Well, they hadn't lifted themselves up above the congregation. They were appointed by God. And when Moses heard it, he fell on his face. Was he afraid of them? No, he was afraid of what God might do to them. That's the kind of faith and uh, maturity that uh, Moses had. And he spoke to them, and of course they uh, challenged them to a, a duel at high noon the next day in verse 7. He says, You bring uh, your censers with all your company and put incense in them before the eternal tomorrow. It shall be that the man whom the eternal uh, chooses, he shall be holy. You take too much upon yourself, you sons of Levi. And so the, uh, they gathered uh, the next day. And uh, verse 31, it came to pass, as uh, Moses said, if something unusual doesn't happen, then these men uh, are okay. But as he came to pass, as he made an end of speaking all these words, that the ground clave asunder that he that was under them and the earth opened 
her mouth and swallow them up in their houses and all the men that appertain to Korah and all those all the all their goods so again uh, those who are critical of God's government um, and said you take too much upon you uh, God made a difference and said I'll tell you who's holy Aaron and Moses are holy and you princes who are so arrogant and have this selfish ambition you're dead as that was God's response to them and of course they had sympathizers the whole congregation began to not uh, to accuse uh, Moses verse 41 but on the morrow all the congregation of the children of Israel murmured against Moses and against Aaron saying you have killed the people of the eternal how did Moses kill the people of the eternal he didn't open up the earth and yet that's the carnal critical mindset of individuals who are carnal and who don't have the fear of God, as we heard in the sermonette, or the conclusion of the matter. Fear God, for this is the whole duty of man. This is the whole purpose of man. And so um, a plague went out from among them, and uh, Moses told Aaron to get a uh, censer and put on some incense and run between them and the plague. Verse 48, and he stood between the dead and the living, and the plague was stayed. Again, here is a classic example of intercession. And the Apostle Paul tells us to give intercessory prayer for all men, for those who are in authority, that we may lead a peaceable life in all godliness and honesty. That's in 1 Timothy 2. So here's a, a, a vivid example of intercession. Here Aaron is standing between the dead and the living. He's interceding for them. And uh, so the plague was stopped, but those who died in the plague were 14,700, beside those that died about the matter of Korah. The ever-present critic uh, can be a problem, and we have to look at our lives and realize that we don't want to have that selfish ambition. Let's take a look at Galatians 5. Again, the... Uh, Characteristics of human nature. Galatians, the fifth chapter, starting with verse 19. Now the works of the flesh are evident, which are adultery, fornication, uncleanness, lewdness, idolatry, sorcery, hatred, contentions, jealousies, outbursts of wrath, selfish ambitions. I'll focus on that. In the King James Version, it's strife dissensions, heresies, envy, murders, drunkenness, revelries, and the like, of which I tell you beforehand, as I also told you in time past, that those who practice such things will not inherit the kingdom of God. The Apostle Paul also warns against selfish ambition. I won't turn there, but just for your reference, Second Corinthians 12.20, he warns against selfish ambition. But what's the solution? Replacing carnal human nature with godly nature. How have you grown in the fruits of the Spirit? I hope you pray for the fruits of the Spirit, that you're growing in love, joy, peace, patience. And uh, as he goes on to say here in uh, verse 22, but the fruit of the Spirit is love, joy, peace, patience, gentleness, goodness, faithfulness, meekness, uh, self-control. Against such there is no law. Verse 23, now there may be some among us who don't like 
discipline, don't like regulations, don't like the Ten Commandments, don't like law. If you don't like law, here's a wonderful opportunity for you. Because there's no law against the fruits of the Spirit. But of course, if you are bearing the fruits of the Spirit, you will have the mind of the Apostle Paul who said, I delight in the law of God. So they reinforce one another. But it's wonderful. There's no law against the fruits of the Spirit. Isn't that wonderful? hope you enjoy that. We need to be growing in the grace and knowledge of Christ. So the solution is to replace human nature with godly nature. I won't turn there, but another example, I'll just give you the reference, Numbers 21, verses 4 through 9, uh, where they had uh, gone by the way of the Red Sea and they around the land of Edom, and it says the soul of the people became very discouraged on the way. And in Numbers 21, 5, it says, And the people spoke against God and against Moses. Why have you brought us up out of Egypt to die in the wilderness? For there is no food and no water, and our soul loathes this worthless bread. No, you're giving us this manna from heaven. I loathe this worthless bread. You talk about complaining. Whoa! What happened? So the Eternal sent fiery serpents among the people, and they bit the people, and many of the people of Israel died. Do you want to be a complainer? I don't think you want to be a complainer. If God is giving you bread from heaven, uh, and maybe it gets boring after a while, but be thankful for it, and don't complain against God. But uh, Moses made a bronze serpent, put it on a pole, And uh, so it was, if the serpent had bitten anyone, that when the person looked at the bronze serpent, he lived. And again, this is kind of a puzzlement to many of us, but uh, the serpent on the pole prefigured the crucifixion of Christ. And you can read that as Jesus explains that in John 3, verses 14 through 15. Let's turn to 1 Corinthians, the 10th chapter, 1 Corinthians 10. So I hope that after today's sermon that uh, you'll remember Second Corinthians, uh, no, what did I say, First Corinthians 2.14, about uh, not complaining. Philippians 2.14, sorry. But here, First Corinthians, the 10th chapter, verse 8, again talking about the history of what happened to the Israelites in the wilderness. Verse 8, Neither let us commit fornication as some of them committed and fell in one day 23,000. Neither let us tempt Christ as some of them also tempted and were destroyed of serpents. I was just referring you to that in Numbers, the 21st chapter. Neither murmur you as some of them also murmured and were destroyed of the destroyer. Or in the New King James, nor complain as some of them also complained and were destroyed by the destroyer. Now all these things happened to them as examples, and they were written for our admonition upon whom the ages have come. So brethren, let's learn from their mistakes and not repeat them. Yes, there are always the ever-present critics, and the living church of God has received criticism because it supposedly preaches Christ too much and not enough of the kingdom of God. We are preaching the gospel of the kingdom, and if critics were watching the telecast, they would know better. 
But here these critics are making criticisms without the facts and without knowledge. The argument is, I heard recently uh, by those critics, is that really that the kingdom of God, the gospel of the kingdom of God is to be preached to the world, but Christ is to be preached to the church. Is that biblical? Is that what your Bible says? Let's turn to Acts 2.38, and uh, let's see if Peter was preaching to the church. There were only 120 disciples at that time, and you know, here are thousands of people who heard Peter, the Apostle Peter, on the day of Pentecost. And he's explaining what what happened, that there was a partial fulfillment of the prophecy in Joel, because there was darkness upon the earth. Verse 20, the sun shall be turned into darkness. Remember, it was three hours of darkness when Jesus was being crucified. And then the moon shall be turned into blood. There was a lunar eclipse in Jerusalem that very night after the crucifixion, in which the moon just did turn red blood. And so when Peter was saying this, these people understood. They had a common experience, and they understood what Peter was talking about. But then when he went on to say, when they said, well, what shall we do after they, after he made clear that they had crucified Jesus, whom you have crucified, both God has made him Lord and Christ, verse 36. Now when they heard this, they were pricked in their heart and said unto Peter and the rest of the apostles, men and brethren, what shall we do? Then Peter preached unto them the kingdom of God. No, not at that point. He said, repent. And be baptized, every one of you, in the name of Jesus Christ for the remission of sins, and you shall receive the gift of the Holy Spirit. Without the name of Christ, you cannot be saved, as he says in chapter 4 and verse 12. Let's turn to uh, Acts the 8th chapter, Acts 8 and verse 5. We've rehearsed some of these before, but I want to uh, give you... uh, some of the problems that we faced and the solutions. Acts 8 and verse 5. Philip went down to the city of Samaria and preached the kingdom of God unto them. No, that's not what my Bible says. And these were not the church. Preached Christ unto them. That's what your Bible said. That's what Philip did. Then verse 12. But when they believed Philip concerning the things of the preaching the things concerning the kingdom of God. Yes, he preached the kingdom of God. And the name of Jesus Christ, both men and women were baptized. So brethren, complainers and critics are not preaching anything to the world. They're saying we ought to be preaching more of the kingdom of God and less of Christ, and they are not doing any of it. They are part of the problem and not a part of the solution. President Theodore Roosevelt gave a classic speech called The Man in the Arena. This was at the Sorbonne in Paris, France, April 23, 1910. He comments on the critic, quote, It is not the critic who counts, not the man who points out how the strong man stumbles or where the doer of deeds could have done them better. The credit belongs to the man who is actually in the arena, whose face is marred by dust and sweat and blood, who strives valiantly, who errs, who comes short again and again, 
because there is no effort without error or shortcoming, but who does actually strive to do the deeds, who knows great enthusiasms, the great devotions, who spends himself in a worthy cause, who at the best knows in the end the triumph of high achievement, and who at the worst, if he fails, at least fails while daring greatly, so that his place shall never be with those cold and timid souls who neither know victory nor defeat. End of quote. An excellent comment by uh, President Theodore Roosevelt in his speech. So he, we've been warning. I've been I've been warning about here briefly about self, selfish ambition, as we saw in the fruits of uh, the flesh. We've had a couple of examples that we know about. One uh, local elder who left our uh, fellowship because. He was not made an area pastor, and no one knew that he had this selfish ambition. But because someone else was transferred in and made a full-time pastor, he left, and it revealed his selfish ambition, which we've read in the Scriptures says that is a work of the flesh. It's a warning for us. Another local elder left our fellowship because he was not made a regional director And again, no one knew that was his ambition, but when a qualified regional director was appointed, he left our fellowship. We need to take the warning of the Scriptures and make sure that we do not have selfish ambition. And we need to set goals. We want to grow in the grace and knowledge of Christ. We want to develop our talents so Christ can use us more effectively. Are you a complainer, a whiner, or a critic? If you have selfish ambition, repent of it. And remember Philippians 2.14, do everything without complaining or arguing. And, of course, the antidote, the solution is learn to thank God for your blessings. If you have a problem with whining, criticizing, or complaining, remember the old saying, I cried because I had no shoes, until I saw a man who had no feet. Let's go on to another section of this uh, challenging topic on are you a part of the solution or are you a part of the problem? I've been criticizing the critics here. But let's understand the difference between being critical and thinking analytically. You know, well, while we're here, turn to Acts, the 17th chapter, Acts 17. Here were individuals uh, who were thinking analytically. These were more noble than those in Thessalonica, Acts 17.11, in that they received the word with all readiness of mind, searched the scriptures daily whether these things were not so. No, no, don't say that, whether these things were so. Uh, They were confirming what was said and done. They thought analytically, they were not, uh, just robots, unthinking individuals. They were doing what we have always encouraged people to do, to not just believe us, but believe the Scriptures. And you know First Thessalonians 5.21, Test all things, hold fast that which is good. But they received the word, as it says later here in, verse, uh, in the rest of the Scripture. They received the word with all readiness of mind. In verse 12, Therefore many of them believed, also of honorable women, which were Greeks, and of men not a few. 
There are four ways of responding to a speaker, to uh, an audience, or the audience can respond. One is to accept the speaker and his message. Another is to reject both the speaker and his message. Another is to accept the speaker but reject his message. Another is to reject the speaker and accept his message. But some critics can only respond in two ways rather than four ways. Now, if I were to say, well, the uh, capital of North Carolina is Atlanta, uh, you would certainly reject that statement because it's not factual. But would you reject the rest that I say? Because I made that one mistake, would you reject everything else I say? Critics, unthinking critics, uh, who would only, would probably, or in some cases, just reject everything because of one mistake. So, again, some critics can only respond in two ways. They become, in my judgment, uh, narrow-minded, uh, pinheaded bigots. Their thinking is ungodly. God wants us to think as he thinks. And you know Philippians 4.8, uh, whatsoever things are true, honest, just, pure, lovely, of a good report, if there be any virtue, if there be any praise, think on these things. Do you think like a narrow-minded bigot and critic, or do you think the way God thinks? Let's turn to Isaiah 55 and verse 8. Isaiah 55. And verse 8, again, the previous verses, he tells us to really seek him, and he will have mercy on us, and he will abundantly pardon. Verse 8, Isaiah 55, For my thoughts are not your thoughts, neither are my ways your ways, says the Eternal. For as the heavens are higher than the earth, so are my ways higher than your ways, and my thoughts than your thoughts. So we need to have a different way of thinking. And we know he tells us in Philippians 2, I believe it's verse 5, let this mind be in you which was also in Christ Jesus. He wants us to think the way he thinks. But the reality is the carnal mind doesn't think spiritually. So we have to change our way of thinking. We need to learn to think like God and Christ. And as Mr. Meredith has said so often, the Bible reveals the mind of God. As we read the Bible, then we are inculcating and understanding the mind of God. I've mentioned to some of you before about the two-valued orientation. S.I. Hayakawa was a senator of California. He was also the president of, of uh, San Jose State in California and wrote a freshman textbook for English classes, Language and Thought and Action. And he brings out the two-valued orientation. Again, this is the kind of the critical thinking, not the evaluative and appropriate way of evaluating and thinking critically, but the two-valued orientation is one in which there is either black or white. There's nothing, no other possibilities. He gives the example of Adolf Hitler before he became dictator, and he was propagandizing his nation of Germany, and he said, you are either a member of the Nazi, the Nationalist Socialist Party, or you are a traitor to Germany. It's a two-valued orientation, and many people were deceived by that two-valued orientation. What's wrong with that? Well, obviously, you could be a patriot of Germany and not be a member of the Nazi party. And so people are deceived by that two-valued orientation, and freshmen learning that instead of a 
they they learn the multi-valued orientation, but there are applications of a two-valued orientation, and that's the Ten Commandments. There are absolutes. And so now freshman students coming along say, oh, well, uh, everything is multi-valued, then we can reject anything that has to do with absolutes. But we have to make sure that we're applying a multi-valued orientation or two-valued orientation correctly. And what is the standard for understanding? Well, we know Psalm 119, 111, verse 10. Psalm 111, verse 10. A good understanding have all they that do is commandments. And, of course, Psalm 1, that uh, where David said he meditated on God's law day and night. There are some very wild doctrinal ideas, and we have to evaluate them. One that uh, was a problem in uh, one other area and has come up once in a while over the years is the idea that you cannot call anyone mister. And uh, why should you not call anyone mister? Because Jesus said, call no one master. And so mister is a derivation of master, therefore you, we shouldn't call anyone mister. And uh, so how do you answer that? Let's turn to Matthew 23, 7. Matthew 23, 7. Because Jesus is talking about the scribes and Pharisees. And by the way, he did say here <clears throat> that they needed to tithe uh, their mint and anise and cumin, uh, verse 23, but they omitted the weightier matters of the law of justice, mercy, and faith. Or faithfulness. He said, don't let the, uh, leave the other undone. In other words, you need to tithe. But here he says in uh, verse 7 that uh, they love to be called rabbi, rabbi. He says, be not called rabbi, for one is your master, even Christ, and you are all brethren. Um, verse 9, do not call anyone on earth your father, for one is your father who is in heaven. Uh-oh. I can't call my dad, dad. Is that what Jesus meant? You're not to call anyone on earth father? No, what? Well, let's read further. And do not be called teachers. Uh-oh, I'm a teacher. Should I not be called a teacher? For one is your teacher, the Christ. But he who is greatest among you shall be your servant. And whoever exalts himself will be humbled. And who humbles himself will be exalted. But woe to you, scribes and Pharisees, hypocrites. He was telling them, those hypocrites, that they were exalting themselves in a position that was taking the place of God, that was taking the place of the teacher, Christ. It wasn't wrong for someone to be called father because you, it would contradict the fifth commandment. Honor your father and your mother. So that's obviously not what Jesus meant. He meant that you are not to be a father in the sense that you are the spiritual focal point only in place of God the Father. Because even the Apostle Paul said that he had begotten um, uh, Onesimus while he was in his chains. But let's understand that there are teachers, that is one of the positions, 1 Corinthians 12 and Ephesians 4. 1 Corinthians 12, 28, and God has appointed these in the church, first apostles, second prophets, third teachers. So Jesus was not doing away with that role and, uh, and that responsibility. 
So we need to understand the Scriptures, and yet here's an individual who's going to say he's not going to call anyone mister. And when you come to that kind of mentality, and this individual begins to spread this um, uh, false doctrine among the congregation, he was talked to for hours and hours, and uh, cease and desist, but he didn't. And so God says in Proverbs, the sixth chapter, uh, that he calls an abomination anyone who sows discord among the brethren. And so as pastors, as uh, shepherds, we have to recognize those things and protect the sheep and apply what God calls abominations that those who sow discord among the brethren should not be in our midst. Again, what is the standard for understanding? It's wisdom from God for Proverbs 1.7 and Proverbs 9.10 and um, Psalm 119, verse 97, where David says, Oh, how love I your law. You know, we've had uh, in my classes in the Living University, we have student essays. And I have been so inspired uh, of the essays that these students have written that are mature, that are biblical, that are encouraging, that are truthful, that are uh, mind-expanding and yet uh, hit the nail on the head. They fulfill the goal of that particular um, response or that particular assignment. And they have an attitude of truth. So we have to pray for unity in the faith, to be a part of the solution and not a part of the problem. We need to understand the difference between critical, being critical and thinking analytically. So pray that you can understand and obey the truth, as we mentioned, Psalm 111 and verse 10. So how do you analyze a problem? God wants you to analyze problems. If you're experiencing a problem, you need to analyze it. I know one time I was feeling so guilty, and I'm wondering, why am I feeling guilty? I don't I understand why I'm feeling guilty. And I prayed about it and realized, uh-oh, God revealed to me I was watching television too much and not praying and reading the Bible. So you have to try to analyze the cause and effect. Now let's turn to James, the uh, first chapter, James 1. And he gives us wisdom to do that. We have to ask God for wisdom. And so in James, the first chapter, in verse 5, it says, If any of you lack wisdom, let him ask God that gives to all men liberally and upbraids not, and it shall be given him. Then the chapter 3, where he gives us the wisdom that's from above. He talks about worldly wisdom that's sensual and devilish. Verse 15 of James 3. And then verse 17, but the wisdom that is from above is first pure, peaceable, gentle, easy to be entreated, full of mercy and good fruits, without partiality and without hypocrisy. So God gives us the ability to analyze problems, to define the the problem, clarify issues, you ask what, why, how, and then you acknowledge God. In Proverbs 3, verses 5 and 6, you get the facts. We had a spokesman club speech assignment, get the facts. And it's so very helpful because sometimes when you're asked to make a decision, you don't have to make a decision. You say, wait a minute, I need more information. I need to get the facts before I make the decision. And then you get wise counsel, Proverbs 11:14, where there's no counsel, the people fall. But in the multitude of counselors, there's safety. And then you make a decision. And then you follow through with that decision. 
Now, as I said earlier, we will be facing other problems. There are many different areas that we could discuss, but there's the problem of finances, which we've discussed and given sermons on. Um, And as we find out here more recently, as the uh, Fortune magazine brought out October 30th, 2007, this past summer's subprime meltdown involved about $900 billion in now suspects uh, securitized debt, reckless lending, and consumers who buckled under the weight of loans they couldn't afford. Now another link in the consumer debt chain, credit cards, is starting to show signs of strain and the fear that the $915 billion in U.S. credit card debt, an uncannily similar figure, may blow up as major financial institutions like Citigroup, American Express, and Bank of America strapping on their Kevlar vests. So we are facing now, we've had the mortgage uh, crisis, and now we're going to be facing a credit card crisis. And Mr. Meredith wrote some time ago to all of us in the Tomorrow's World magazine, Are You Prepared? January, February 2005. In the article, Are You Prepared? A first priority, he writes, would be to pay off all credit card debts and all other debts we possibly can. We should also have at least the equivalent of 60 days living expenses in case of a sudden, sudden breakdown in the banking system or a similar emergency. Also, we should gradually work out a family budget that allows us over time to set financial resources to carry us through a year or more in case of job loss, catastrophic health situations, etc., So we have to be doing our part. This one couple in Kiplinger's personal finance, a young couple who are both law students, uh, finally uh, got their law degrees and are now making very good money, married as husband and wife. They have uh, a whopping $350,000 in student loan debt. And so... Their loans, 14 loans, range from 4.5% to 14.2%, and the loans are payable over as many as 30 years. Right now, they are paying $2,900 a month just on their, their loans. So what are they going to do? They decided that they will uh, tighten their belts. They actually boosted their monthly loan payments to more than half of their take-home pay. It hasn't felt as if we had to make changes in our spending because we weren't used to having money anyway, they said. So they feel after five years of belt tightening, they will have paid off more than two-thirds of their student loans, and their monthly loan payments will fall to about $700 rather than the $2,900. At that point, they can think about buying a house and boosting their retirement savings. So your tough money problem solved is the title of the article. So there are solutions to problems, and we need uh, everyone's help. We need wisdom. We need guidance in following and finding the solutions to those problems. But are you a part of the solution, or are you a part of the problem? Let's turn to Ephesians, the fourth chapter, Ephesians 4. And here we find that we each have a part in the body of Christ as a part of doing works that are good and helpful and serving, cooperating, responding. I was just thinking of an article I wrote years ago, how 
How responsive are you? And you realize that when an alarm goes to 911, that the uh, paramedics or the fire uh, engines are roaring out there, and they're very, very responsive. Uh, but how responsive are you to the coworker letter or to the um, editorial in the Living Church News or Tomorrow's World magazine? Uh, you want to think about what uh, Jesus said in John 10:27: My sheep hear my voice, and they follow me. In Ephesians, the fourth chapter, verse 14, But speaking the truth in love, we may grow up in all things into him which is the head, Christ. Verse 16, From whom the whole body, joined and knit together, by what every joint supplies according to the effective working by which, in the New King James, every part does its share. If you have that, I encourage you to underline that section in verse 16. In the King James Version, it says, Working in the measure of every part, making increase of the body unto the edifying of itself in love. The effective working by which every part does its share causes growth of the body for the edifying of itself in love. So ask yourself, how am I helping the body of Christ? How, if I am, harming the body of Christ? Am I helping or am I hindering? Am I complaining? Am I gossiping? Am I criticizing? Am I setting a bad example to the church, to the world? Do I, do I compromise with God's commandments? Do I compromise with the truth? So what can you do to help? Ask, how can I help? You are a part of the solution and not a part of the problem. I'll just list some of those quickly for you. Number one, pray for one another. James 5.16 Pray one for another that you may be healed. We're thankful for the healings that God is giving us. And to encourage one another, write notes and emails. And, of course, the cards we have on the back information table that people write in, and they're just so encouraged because we have thought about them. And sometimes not only your little signature, but some of you write a little encouraging sentence or two that is so encouraging to people who are sick or have other problems that we send out to, to other areas around the world. Another way is giving gifts to the poor. Proverbs 19.17 He who has pity on the poor lends to the eternal, and he, the eternal, will pay back what he has given. So give gifts to the poor. Serve the needy with your skills. Some of you have uh, skills of uh, car repair or carpentry or plumbing. Remember James 1.27 that Pure and undefiled religion before God and the Father is to visit our orphans and widows in their trouble and to keep himself unspotted from the world. I remember uh, Dr. Scott Winnale when he was here in training. He was out mowing uh, the widow's lawns. And so we can serve that way. Serve the needy with your skills. And then are you growing? Are you growing in the grace and knowledge of Christ? Is Mr. Meredith said in his sermon on abundant life to young people, continue your education, develop your skills. There are vocational books, of course, What is the Color of Your Parachute, which is a classic, recently updated. So you can help in many different ways. You can help by watching the telecast and telling others about it. And you can tell others about WHKY Hickory and how that's on at uh, 7.30 Monday nights on... Uh, Channel 18 on Time Warner Cable, and WAXN uh, Channel uh, 10 on Time Warner Cable, Sunday mornings at 7, 
Of course, WGN uh, Channel 19 Sunday mornings at 6 o'clock. What can you do to help as a part of the solution? Reading the co-worker letters, reading the semi-annual letters, and praying about them, responding to them. And of course it tells us in Ephesians 2 that He's created us unto good works which God has before ordained that we should walk in them. We've talked about problems and solutions. And I want to emphasize Matthew 24, verse 22, which I hope is encouraging to you, to realize that we are not just anybody in the world, that God has called us out of the world as His first fruits, and that is a privilege, but it is also a great responsibility. You know the scripture about the Great Tribulation that is unique in all history, never will be as great in the future. But in verse 22, Matthew 24, And except those days should be shortened, there should no flesh be saved, but for the elect's sake, those days shall be shortened. I've just written a booklet on Armageddon and beyond, which is going to be sent out uh, later on. And when you look at all of the deadly threats to planet Earth, ABC had one on uh, deadly threats to planet Earth, seven deadly threats, including asteroids, and including uh, uh, nuclear war, and, and uh, droughts, and famines, and, and uh, biological, and chemical, and radiological uh, dangers to uh, planet Earth. When you think about them, there's no way in the future that planet Earth can survive. But there is a way, and there's a reason why. And the reason why is because there's an elect on the earth. The solution to the world's problems of war, disease, famine, and oppression are in part the elect. And the good news is that the world is going to survive Armageddon because there are faithful Christians for whom the world will be saved. As Jesus said in Matthew 24, 22, for the elect's sake, those days shall be shortened. He also calls us the salt of the earth and the light of the world. Let's turn to Revelation, the 17th chapter, Revelation 17. The Apollo 13 crew announced to Mission Control, Houston, we have a problem. Incredible teamwork helped solve that problem. The Apollo 13 crew followed the instructions of Houston's command center, and they were saved. The Bible gives us solutions to our problems. Will we follow its instructions to solve, help solve the world's problems? Will we follow its instructions for life and eternal life? The world's problem is human nature and it needs a solution. God's plan of salvation is the solution. And you are a living testimony and witness and example of that solution. We are now overcoming human nature. We are now overcoming Satan and society. And as kings and priests in tomorrow's world, we'll be teaching the nations the way to peace. We are learning to be peacemakers now. We will teach the nations how to overcome their human nature. So it tells us in Revelation 17 and verse 14, because he's returning to conquer his enemies, these, the world's armies, Revelation 17:14 shall make war with the lamb and the lamb shall overcome them 
for he is Lord of lords and King of kings. And they that are with him are called, chosen, and faithful. That's you and me. That is our goal, and that is our commitment to be called, chosen, and faithful. God has called us to be men and women of faith, as we heard in the weekly update by Dr. Winnale. One final one, let's turn to Revelation 12 and verse 10. The world's way is the way of get, the way of fraud, carnality, and selfishness. The world's way leads to a culture of complaining, criticizing, and accusing. And who's behind that? Revelation 12 and verse 10. And I heard a loud voice saying in heaven, Now has come salvation and strength in the kingdom of God and the power of his Christ. For the accuser of our brethren is cast down, which accused them before our God day and night. So God has called us to be a part of his solution to the problems of the world. We don't follow the accuser of the brethren. And God is demonstrating through us that carnal nature can be converted to divine nature. That is the miracle of conversion. So, brethren, let's pray that the love of God will be shed abroad in our hearts by the Holy Spirit, Romans 5.5. 5. Let's examine ourselves when we face problems in human relations, whether it's in the workplace or family, in the church or in God's work. As I asked at the beginning, are you a part of the solution or a part of the problem? So pray that you can be a part of the solution in God's church and in the world. Thank God that he's called you and me to assist Jesus Christ in the coming kingdom, in serving, in teaching, in ruling the world in righteousness. So thank God for his solution to the world. You are a part of his solution.